Good to see you here. I'm going to uh, read out for you a little bit from Luke chapter 6, which is about an interaction Jesus has with some religious leaders of his day. You might like just to listen and watch, uh, and then you can open up your Bibles and we'll dig in a bit into this chapter. Luke chapter 6 is where I'm taking this from. Uh, Let me read it out for us. Here we go. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked round at them all. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. What strikes you as very strange about that story? At least two things. What strikes you as strange? Any suggestions? First of all, you've got to say, hey, a guy who had a shriveled hand was just miraculously healed. That's pretty strange. That's pretty amazing. Now, if you were there and you saw that happen, my guess is your reaction would have been, woo, awesome, Jesus. That's fantastic. Get on Twitter and tell the world that's fantastic. You would have been ecstatic. But the second really strange thing about that story is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious when this happened. They were angry. They were full of rage when this happened. Does that make any sense to you? Why would they be so angry when Jesus miraculously heals a guy with a shriveled hand? Here I think is the reason why. Ready? It's because Jesus had challenged their comfortable politics. Jesus had challenged their comfortable politics. Now, when I talk about politics, I'm not talking about how you vote on election day, whether you vote left, right or Labor. That's my, that's my little political joke. But, uh, yeah, you didn't care anyway. Anyway, so we're not talking about how you vote on election day, right? When I talk about politics, I'm talking more generally about politics in a way that all of us, all, every human being, all of us think in terms of who's in and who's out. Who do I associate with and who are the opponents? Who are those I distance myself from? 
Who are those who I'm happy to be associated with? We all think in these political sort of terms. Whether you know it or not, you are a political animal. You operate by a set of politics. Who do you want to associate with? Who would you quite like to be distant from? Who are you happy to move towards? Who, frankly, are you running away from? We are all operating with some sort of politics. And what Jesus does is Jesus has challenged the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this religious elite, he challenged their politics because they operated with a politics of exclusion premised on law keeping, keeping Old Testament, Old Covenant law. That was their politics, a politics of exclusion based on law keeping. Let me explain that. See, the Pharisees had decided if you really loved God, the one true living God, if you really loved God, then you would keep his laws. That's how you would express your love for God, by keeping his laws and really keeping them. Be really on about holiness. And so that's what they did. So much so that they said, if you are not fully on for God's laws and keeping all of his laws, then clearly you're not fully on for God. And if you're not fully on for God, that makes you God's enemy. And if you're God's enemy, then you're my enemy too. They had this politics of exclusion based on law keeping. If you are fully into God's law and keeping it all like we do, then you're in. If you're not, you're a sinner and an enemy of God. And they didn't really care whether you were a Jew or a Gentile at that point. You're an enemy of God. This was their politics. And Jesus challenges their comfortable politics. How does he do it? Well, if you've been reading through Luke's Gospel and maybe, you know, if you're looking for a bit of a study break towards the busy end of semester, you know, what a great time to spend, you know, an hour reading Luke's Gospel. I'm sure you can find lots of reasons to justify that, but it's actually a good thing to do. If you're reading through chapters 5 and 6, you'll see... Jesus, in chapter 5, met a guy called Levi. Levi was a tax collector. Now, if you know the New Testament and you're you're familiar with the Gospels, as soon as I say tax collector, you go... That's pretty half-hearted booing, may I just say, right? He's a tax collector! You hate him! Why? Because your country is overrun by an occupying force. New Zealand has taken over Australia. (laughs) New Zealand has taken over Australia. Levi is working for the New Zealanders taxing Australians. And he's an Australian. Traitor! You hate him! Levi is working for the Romans as a tax collector. Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Levi does. Levi, rich from ripping off Jews, Levi says, I will hold a great dinner party for you. You can see it in chapter 5. Then Levi, verse 29, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. What's the Pharisees' reaction? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see how Jesus is challenging their politics of exclusion based on law-keeping. These guys are sinners. These guys are not for God. You're going and associating with them. If you eat with somebody, it's like giving them a tick of approval. And Jesus is challenging their politics of exclusion. He does, it keeps going then into chapter 6. 
one Sabbath, verse 1, Jesus was going through the cornfields. His disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Right? They're fully into God's Old Testament law. God's Old Testament law said the Sabbath day, the Jews kept one day holy a week, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, the last day of the week, Saturday for us. They kept this day as holy to God because God said don't do any work. Now, harvesting your crops, right? It's harvest time, all the crops there, you go out with all your people and you harvest all... That's clearly work, isn't it? And so they were not to do that on the Sabbath day. But uh, these Pharisees, being so concerned to not do anything that might possibly be conceived as work on the Sabbath, they had decided that actually, even if you're walking along besides the road and there's random bits of grain growing out the edges of someone's field and you sort of get that grain and crush it in your hand and eat it as a bit of a snack, no, that's harvesting. Surely that's technically harvesting, therefore that's work, therefore you're a sinner. But actually it's interesting, even in the Old Testament itself, it actually distinguishes between harvesting, full-on sort of harvesting, and what you might call plucking. It actually draws a distinction between the two. But these guys have said, no, no, you're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. See how Jesus is once again challenging their politics of exclusion. He's going, no, no, this is fine. What's going on here is fine. And he actually gives them an example from the Old Testament where David and his people did something that was technically unlawful, but why? Well, because the law was meant to serve human beings, not oppress human beings. But they turned it into something that was oppressing human beings, rather than the thing for which it was meant, it was meant to be a blessing to people. And then we go on to the incident that I started with. The man there in the synagogue with the shriveled hand, and Jesus says, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or do evil? To save life or destroy it? Now, if you knew your Old Testament, that is an absolute no-brainer. Reason being, when the one true living God gave the Ten Commandments, say in Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you go back and read there the Sabbath command in Deuteronomy 5, the explanation that's given of it within the Ten Commandments is, the Lord God says, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy because I saved you out of Egypt. The Sabbath was all about salvation. All of it. It, was just, it was all about salvation. So when Jesus says, what's lawful on the Sabbath? To save life or destroy it? No brainer. It's saving life. But the Pharisees had said, yeah, but you're not allowed to work. Surely healing somebody is technically work. And you know, yes, if someone's life was in mortal danger, if, if they were at the very point of death, you could, out of compassion, rescue them at that point. But then they would have debates about when was someone's life technically sort of at the point where you must break the Sabbath in order to rescue them. And Jesus says, no, you guys have just lost the point again. The Sabbath is about saving. Moreover, we know from Luke chapter 4, Jesus has come to proclaim freedom for those who are oppressed. He's here on a saving mission. But you see, they've wandered away. They've somehow distorted the law that they were actually trying to keep. So Jesus has challenged their whole politics of exclusion based on law-keeping. Alright, you've stayed with me so far, well done. Why should you care? Let me tell you why. What Jesus is doing here in challenging their comfortable politics, I think he does to us. He challenges our comfortable politics. He challenges their comfortable politics with the, 
with the challenging and beautiful kingdom of God, which we're going to dig into in a moment. And what happens to us is he challenges our comfortable politics with the challenging and beautiful kingdom of God. I think what we often try to do is we try to latch onto Jesus with one hand and keep another hand on our grubby personal politics. But actually what Jesus says to do is, no, you've got to let go of that other politics and grab on to my gospel of the kingdom of God with both hands. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit now. So, I've been talking a little bit under the heading of retro Jesus. I've been talking a little bit about why were they so angry because he was challenging their comfortable politics. And I want to talk a little bit about, well, is Jesus a revolutionary here or is he actually Is Jesus giving, saying, here's a new thing that I'm announcing to you or is he saying something else? Now, the reason I raise this is because it's raised by the text. Have a look at chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, Luke's Gospel there, if you haven't opened it yet. This is the end of Jesus' dinner party at Levi's house, right? Where he and the Pharisees are having this interaction and then Jesus says this in verse 36. Jesus told them this parable... No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. If they do, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. What the heck is he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, let me give you an example. Um, for some bizarre reason, my jeans always wear out in exactly the same place. Every pair. I would like to say they wear out on the knees because I'm such a man of prayer. <laughs> Tragically, not the case. Oh, that one day that would be the problem. No, no, for some bizarre reason, my jeans always wear out, and I'm a bit ashamed to say it, on the um, inner thigh. <laughs> I think that's because my thighs, as you can clearly see, are so massive because I've really sort of bulked up and recently. Um, yeah, thank you for laughing. That's so the MP3 people can actually get that that was deeply ironic. Um, for some reason they wear out on the inner thigh. I pulled on these jeans the other day and went, I, I see daylight. I've broken through yet again. Um, but then I thought, I need to wear them this week so I can make this point. They will never be seen in public again. Anyway, but I... A previous pair of jeans wore out in the same place and stopped looking at my thighs. Um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, but I really like these jeans. I wonder if I can rescue them. And so I said to my fantastic mother-in-law, who's, who's brilliant with all this sort of stuff, I said, oh, can you fix them? She said, no worries, I'll patch them. So she went and got a brand new piece of denim, <laughs> cut it out and, <laughs> and stitched it on. New jeans that I can never wear <laughs> in public because they've got a big, brand new, bright denim patch on faded jeans. It's just you don't wreck, uh, cut out a new garment to patch it onto old. It will never match. You don't take fresh, beautiful new wine, just pressed, and pour it into mangy old sort of wine skins that are on their last legs. You do that, the new wine is going to burst the old mangy skins. You've got then you've lost the wine and you've got the, and got the skins anymore, right? You just don't do that. 
You put the new wine into new wineskins. You wear the new garment. That's what you do, right? Why is Jesus saying this to these Pharisees and teachers of the law? Well, the kicker is in the very next verse, which is the last verse of chapter 5. He says, And some of you, sorry, and none of you, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for you say, the old is better. That is, he's saying, here's this beautiful new wine, and you're sitting there with your mangy old wine skin going, drinking from that going, the old is better. You're not even trying to try the new. No, the old is better. <laughs> he said, that's you, you Pharisees and teachers of the law. You're, you're, you're addicted to the old wine and won't even try the new wine that I am bringing in. Now, just the reason I point that out is you might think from that that you'll go, right, well, it sounds like Jesus is the new because that's what he's saying in that little parable and the Pharisees, they're the old, right? That's the little story he just told. However, when you read it in the whole context, you'll see what Jesus says is new is actually retro. Jesus is a retro guy, not a revolutionary guy at this point. See, because what's the interaction he has with them over the Sabbath? He says, you guys have lost the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was always meant to be a blessing to human life, not oppressing humans. The Sabbath was always meant to be about saving life, not condemning people to stay in their suffering. You guys have lost the plot, actually, on the Sabbath. So actually, whilst the Pharisees wanted to be all for the Torah, the Old Testament law, Jesus says, no, you guys have actually deviated and I am the one who is calling people back to God's original intention. That's what he's doing. And you can see this throughout this chapter because what Jesus does next is he then goes, after these two Sabbath stories, he then goes and out of all his disciples he calls twelve to be apostles. Why twelve? Because there were twelve tribes in Israel. Jesus is actually, he's reconstituting the nation of Israel. He's refreshing the people of Israel by sort of start, not starting completely new again, but actually saying, no, we've so lost our way that we need to refresh and regroup and here's 12 and we're going to go from here. And then what he does straight after that is he comes down off the mountain and he teaches people how to live, his disciples how to live. Is it brand new teaching? Is it stuff we've never ever heard before? No. The principles that he's talking about are all located back there in the Old Testament. Jesus is a retro guy at this point calling God's people back to live the way God always intended. He wants them... (laughs) He wants them to live the way that God always intended them to live. And that's why when you read through what he says to them, he tells them about, be like your Father in heaven. Mirror the character of your heavenly Father. He calls them back to faithfulness, to Yahweh, to reflect Yahweh's character, which is what God's people were always meant to do. Be holy as I am holy. So, is Jesus' stuff new? Not really, it's retro. Sort of like elsewhere in the New Testament, in uh, the book of 1 John, you see... The Apostle John saying, 
I write to you a new commandment which we've had from the beginning. Well, that doesn't make it new, does it? Like, but he says, the new commandment that you had from... It's the retro idea, okay? So that's what he's doing here. So when he comes down off the plane, he says, here's how to then go about this retro living, living in faithfulness to God. So I want to do in this last little section then is really focus in on here because this is where I think Jesus starts to challenge their politics and our comfortable politics. He challenges it with the challenging and beautiful kingdom of God. So let's have a look there. Let me just read out the beginning of this little talk Jesus gives. If you've got it there, have a look. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Okay, and then Jesus goes on for the rest of that chapter and we won't have time to read it all, though I will try and talk about some of the things he says there. First thing I want you to notice is this. Right throughout this talk that Jesus gives, this talk on sort of retro living, living in accordance with the one true living God, Right throughout it is this idea that you have to live today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you live today in light of the coming future. It's right throughout this talk. And it starts right there in the very first words. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, uh, in sort of as reflecting on this and preparing for this, I just typed into sort of, you know, my little Bible search engine thing, I typed in kingdom of God, Luke. And then I thought, oh no, it's, well, Luke also wrote Acts. So I better type in Kingdom of God, Luke and Acts. And it came out with all the references to Kingdom of God and Luke and Acts. There's not that many, maybe it's about 30 or so. And then I looked them all up to see it. And what you notice when you do that work is the Kingdom of God in the preaching of Jesus and in the preaching of the apostles following Jesus' lead, the Kingdom of God is usually almost entirely a future reality. It's not something that you are really in now. It's something that you, by faith in Jesus you will be in. So Jesus can even say in Luke 22, I won't eat or drink again until I see it fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So clearly the kingdom of God is not yet present even as Jesus is doing his own ministry. He can say the kingdom of God has come near as he delivers people you know, from oppression and stuff like that and you know, from evil spirits. It's come near, but the actual fulfilment of the kingdom of God is still a future reality. And it's right throughout this. Then you notice the next couple of things he says. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Future. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will go... You notice the future tenses? He's talking about there's a future reality and you're to live life now in the light of it. Jesus is eschatological. 
Jesus is all about the end. Guess what we're doing at annual conference this year? Waiting for the end of the world. Why do we pick that topic? It's because there is not a page in your Bible that is not eschatological. Not about the end. Not future looking. You find me a page in your Bible that is not eschatological. That is not, doesn't have some aspect of futureness to it. Except for the table of contents, I'll grant you. Okay? <laughs> but they are, the entire Bible is thoroughly eschatological from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And if you don't get that, you won't read the Bible rightly. <laughs> I'm getting too excited. You, you won't read the Bible rightly and you need to be at annual conference to get it right. Hand up if you have not yet registered. The dorm rooms are disappearing. You're going to have to pay more money for the same product. Well, that is a bed in the conference, right? So, get your act together, come along. It's going to be awesome. Great times. Okay. All right. End of ad. The entire little speech Jesus gives here is eschatological. That's the first thing to note. Then, then notice what he actually says. The first thing he says here is that the future is both comfort and a warning. The future is both comfort and warning. If you want to live this retro sort of living in, in faithfulness to God, the future is about comfort and warning. Comfort for those who are poor, who are hungry now, who are weeping now, but a warning for those who are rich, who are well fed, who are laughing. Now stop and just think about that for a minute. Does that trouble you a little? What has Jesus got against hungry, happy, well-fed people? Sorry, happy, well-fed, rich people. What has he got against them? Why is he pronouncing woe to you? I mean, have you got a full tummy? You got some money in the bank? You have a bit of a laugh now and then? Woe to you who are hungry, woe to well-fed. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who laugh now. What's Jesus got against that? So you've got to actually apply your mind to actually understand what he's saying here. Who is he speaking to, first of all? Who is he speaking to? Verse 20, looking at his disciples. This is not a statement about the world out there. He's saying something to his followers, people who trust in Jesus. He's not saying to every poor person in the world, yours is the kingdom of God. He's not saying that. He's saying to his disciples, if you are part of God's people and you are poor now and you are hungry now and you are sad now, there is comfort to come. There is comfort to come. And then he flips it and says, but if you're sitting here claiming to be part of the people of God, followers of Jesus, and you're sitting here well fed and you're sitting here rich and you're sitting here pretty happy, and there are other people sitting here, followers of Jesus, who are hungry, who are sad, who are poor. Woe to you. Do you see what he's challenging? He's challenging your politics of individualism. That you just think, I'm alright. I'm okay. Lord have mercy on them. He's challenging our comfortable politics of individualism.
Do you know, and this is a scary stat, that they tell us, people who've done the work, that around the world today, there are 200 million Christians, people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, Christian, 200 million Christians who live in what the World Bank describes as abject poverty. Abject poverty. Not able to provide for basic needs. 200 million Christians. And we go, that's bad. God, do something about it. I'll download some more tunes from iTunes. I'll spend the money. I'll go out for a fancy meal. Now, there's nothing wrong with downloading stuff from iTunes. There's nothing wrong with going out for a fancy meal. But do you just... I want you to feel the uncomfortable challenge of Jesus to our politics of individualism. We latch onto Jesus with one hand and individualism with the other. And Jesus says, you can't do it. The New Testament says, actually, when you become a member of Jesus, we become members one of another. And this is not a, this is not a, a once-only for Jesus. Right throughout Luke, you'll see Jesus saying the same sort of thing. You know Jesus' story in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus? Both members of the nation of Israel, the rich man who spends his whole life in luxury, who every day walks past Lazarus, a poor man, covered in sores, who lies at his gate and does nothing to help. Then in the parable that Jesus tells, they both die. Lazarus, the poor man, goes to be with Abraham in the kingdom of God. The rich man goes to a place of torment. Why? And then in the parable, the explanation is given. Because you, rich man, lived every day with all these blessings and walked past Lazarus and never stopped to help. And now he is being comforted. This is a common theme in the teaching of Jesus. He challenges our comfortable politics of individualism with the challenging and beautiful kingdom of God. Because what sort of witness would it be if we lived like this? If we actually said, you know what? No Christian poor. We want to do good to all the Christians, the followers of Jesus, our brothers and sisters, and to everybody else. We want to do good to all. But what a witness would it be if we actually cared for the Christian poor as a start? You know what underlies that, right? What underlies that is what Jesus goes on to next. He goes on to then talk about love, unsurprisingly. He says there, verse 27, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who will treat you. He really ups the ante on love, right? So it's not just, not just you, you should love even those who you've excluded, even those you have decreed as the enemies. And he actually says here later, what good is it if you just love those who love you back? What good is it if you lend to those who, who you know will repay you? He says even sinners do that, even those on the outside, even those who don't know God do that. We are called to what? How do you put this? I mean, you could call it unconditional love, but these days that's become so trite that doesn't even impact us anymore. So I try, we're called to unexpecting love. Love that expects nothing in return. Do you really want to do that? Do you want to love somebody when there is really 
no hope that they would, bar a miracle of God, love you back. Because that's what loving an enemy is, right? Jesus says, give to those with no expectation of return. See, because we're operating with all sorts of other politics there. We operate with a politics of reciprocity. Or, I will love you, I'll be nice to you, hoping that I will get something back. Because I want something back from you. I'm not going to love you, because, well, I don't really want to get anything back from you. And so, we have this politics of selectivity, politics of prejudice. I'll love those who are like me, because that's easy. Am I going to love the international student? Am I going to love the person who comes from a different socioeconomic class to me? Am I going to love old people? I mean, really old people? Bizarrely, we sometimes think we have a, we have a, you know, it's our job to proclaim the gospel to our peers and maybe to those who are younger than us, but, well, old people, I don't need to proclaim the gospel to old people. Someone else should do that, right? That's their job, right? All the time we introduce these boundaries, different politics, politics of prejudice, and Jesus overturns it all with his politics of love. Unexpecting love. Abounding love. And then Jesus turns... What do I want to say? I don't know. Just really turns it up. Because where does he finish this little talk? And this is where I'll finish too. He finishes then by actually saying, it's no good if you just listen to these things. You actually have to do them. And it actually reveals your heart whether you do or not. So he has a challenge there at the end, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for those who come to me and hear my words and put them into practice, I'll show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it couldn't shake it because it was well built. But those who hear my words and do not put them into practice are like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed. And its destruction was complete. So I've sat in many EU public meetings, right? From when I was a student through when I was a a Howie here, like a staff worker. I've, I've been to church for years. I've heard lots of talks and... Sometimes you walk out going, oh, yeah, great word, you know, powerful word or helpful word or whatever. And then I go to a chemistry lab or I go to my philosophy tutor and there's nothing. Nothing happens as a result, right? Hear Jesus' words. You hear what I say and don't do it? That's as stupid as building your dream home on the sand at Manly, at Bondi. Your dream home. Everything you ever wanted at home, plonk it right there on the edge of the water, on the sand, no foundation, just put it up. Glorious. And the first king tide comes in. It's smashed. And he says, that would be you. If you hear my words and don't do them. Because of eschatology, there is a coming moment of accountability. Don't be mere hearers of the word, but doers too. Now, to finish then, I'm going to say this. You might think, but it's too hard. What can I do? How can I actually do something about this? I want to say to you, you can do it because Jesus has enabled you to do something. Because he poured out his spirit 
into the heart of every single person who puts their trust in him. If you are a follower of Jesus by faith, then you have the powerful spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead at work in your life right now. You are going to say, it's too hard for me to abandon my own politics and latch on to Jesus' politics of the kingdom? That's too hard? I can't do it? No, you can do it. Because God has put his spirit in you to enable you to do it. So why don't I pray that he help us do it to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that enlightens our darkness. We thank you for the living Lord Jesus, for his challenging and so beautiful gospel of the kingdom of God. And we pray that by your powerful spirit at work in all those who call you Father, that you would help us to live lives that reflect your character, that reflect your love, that reflect your great inclusion of us into your family in the lives that we lead. And we pray because we want to bring you praise and glory in your world. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.